Hello everybody, welcome into Hacked History. Uh, kind of a special episode here, we uh, didn't really announce this to anybody, we just kind of decided, given the current times, we do something a little, a little bit different. Uh, and and uh, today, and possibly tomorrow, depending on how this goes, uh, we're going to be releasing new episode, or possibly episodes, if we uh, decide to make this into two. Uh, we're going to take a look back at, historically, some of the protests that have been happening in the past, and uh, sort of how civil rights has been handled in the past, and kind of just put some information out there. We're not really going to do, we're not, obviously, we uh, take this very seriously. We're not going to do our normal jovial joke making during this sort of thing. We're just about, about out here to give you guys some some new information, maybe, or maybe old information if you already know, but if not, uh, this is kind of our way of trying to reach out to people who may not know a lot of this history or may not have paid attention as much in class uh, and, or, and or could use some more uh, knowledge. Uh, so, again, we're not going to try to take any, or we're we, we will not take any opinion, or we will not take any specific stance. That's the whole point here. We're not trying to take a stance on any particular topic. Uh, we're just out here trying to give some more uh, background. Isn't that right, Jake? Yeah. So, as a sort of background for current topic, what we're doing here is we're kind of taking a look back at the civil rights movement in the 60s. as a big moment in U.S. history for us. And right now, at the moment, as we're recording this in 2020... We are, again, faced with what I would consider to be a sort of civil rights movement, either in the beginning or kind of in its full swing, because we're seeing a lot of backlash against what had originally occurred. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, which is okay, um, a few weeks ago, I believe it was in early June, mid-May, it was late May, just off the top of my head, uh, uh, yeah. The timing, honestly... It was on Memorial Day. It was on... Um, was killed by the... Yeah. It was on Memorial Day, the Memorial Day weekend. Police Department. Yes, that uh, an African American man named George Floyd was killed after an arrest by a Minneapolis, Minnesota police officer, and the Minneapolis, Minnesota police officer was seen and at this point in time has been convicted of using unnecessary force in the arrest. Um, he hasn't been convicted. He's but he hasn't been convicted. He's been charged. Yeah. Sorry about that. Hopefully, that was, that he gets convicted, up. but yeah. that's. Regardless of that, the backlash that we saw and what we've been seeing both in the United States and abroad is something that within a lot of people, both both me and Lucas's age, we only have read about. To be honest, I mean, the last time that I remember a major riot would have been, I guess you could say Baltimore, but like... For me, I go back to Ferguson. This Ferguson was... was the extension of what happened in Ferguson. Yeah. And basically all of those major riots did happen, the ones in Baltimore, the one in Ferguson, and, and probably other smaller ones too. Well, the bottom line is there's a lot of reform that hasn't yeah. happened. Uh, there's things that have been tried but obviously clearly not implemented yeah. well or well enough, or maybe in some cases not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so clearly there's a need for uh, – there's there's a necessity for more reform. Um, yeah. And in this – Sing well not in this single case, but during this current situation, we've actually started to see a lot of events happening. The there has been a, a good number of reopening of cases of people who were killed by police officers that had originally been just sort of swept under and ignored. There has been a number of firings of police officers who were guilty of things like that. So there is things that are changing. As most people probably know, they have voted or are starting to think about or contemplating disbanding the police department in Minneapolis, and a lot of people are calling for the defunding of police, which which what it means specifically is that 
they're basically looking for a way to sort of curb the militarization of the police force. They're not talking about cutting off all the money, but they're talking about trying to sort of rein in what they feel is sort of a almost a rogue force in this situation. So what we've decided, again, with echoing what Lucas said earlier, we're not taking a side on this because obviously a person's opinions are left up to themselves and we would be going down to a place that most people probably might want us to go in terms of opinions, but where we won't go. Because well, the point here is uh, this is supposed to be purely educational, and our hope is that uh, whatever view you do end up taking, uh, we can at least do our part by making sure that there's some historical knowledge there for just as far as to why you might have whatever view you're going to have. We're not going to outwardly call people any names or anything. That's not what you're going to find here. Uh, if you want sort of, if you want that, I'm sure you saw plenty of that on social media lately. So we're gonna stray away from those type of tactics. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're here to do. So yeah, and we're not gonna call anybody out because that's number one, not how this podcast is, and that's not who we are as people. You're entitled to your own opinion, and to that point, though we might gaff at it in other episodes, deep down we still state that you hold that opinion and that is your sovereign right to have it. So what we're gonna do here. Ideally, we're going to try to get both of these figures in one podcast episode, but odds are from, you know, the way things tend to go or maybe the speed of it, we might not be able to. If we do, great. If we don't, we'll do one tomorrow. But we'll look at two specific people during the 1960s civil rights movement. We're looking at Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Basically, they're sort of like a testing balance of how people saw the movement. There was the nonviolent side... And then there was the more militant side. Whichever side is which, they had their own belief system, but the aim of this episode is to sort of educate you on the main character on both of those sides. Well, the idea is to sort of, uh, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, Jake, but I think the idea is when we conceptually discuss this is the idea uh, to really look at why people might have chose to do what they did in the movement. Yeah. So understanding why people might have been more militant, oh, yeah, why people yeah. might have been more peaceful in the way they protested. And, and we'll get into that too as we start talking about well, it. Well, yeah, and I think you'll see that like really just even if you start looking at the biographies of these people's lives, you can kind of understand why they might have tended to do the things yeah. they have done, the things they did. Yeah. So. Okay, so we're going to start off with Martin Luther King Jr. And we're just sort of doing this at a random... There's no particular, like, method to this. But we're going to start with a basic biography like we usually do, and then what we have is that we're going to look at their political or, I would say, moral philosophy, depending on this. And me and Lucas, from time to time, will engage in sort of a discussion, and, you know, we obviously won't make comments or jokes that are, you know... But we will. We will. Yeah, talk I won't. It. I won't be uh, chiming in with with any uh, with any quips this uh, this episode. Um, just a side quick pro- programming note. Uh, if you if you don't want to listen to this, um, obviously we can't force you to listen to the rest mm-hmm. of this episode. But uh, this is just something we thought we uh, we should do, um, because it was the right thing to do in our opinion. Um, so, but if you but if you prefer not to listen to this episode, you li- want to look look back at more uh, funny stuff and some more quips and stuff like that. Uh, you can catch us uh, later in the week. We're going to be recording an episode, releasing it on uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So that's going to be more of our normal, uh, mm-hmm. goofy, funny stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, just That was just a quick programming note. And if you want to get a hold of us to discuss any of this stuff, uh, please do. Uh, you can get a hold of us at hackedhistory101 at gmail.com or via our Facebook or Instagram accounts. Uh, we will definitely be pretty 
pretty responsive as much as we can be. So, mm-hmm. with that being said, Jake, take it away. So, Martin Luther King Jr. was born Michael Luther King Jr. on January 15th, 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia. Martin was born, I will refer to him as Martin, even though they call him Michael, I refer to him as Martin. Really, his birth name was Michael, I did not know that. Yeah, which is uh, was interesting, I suppose, to that point, but, you know, Martin, due to, I think, the religious stance of his family, he may it, have... Because it wasn't his dad a, uh, was his dad a minister, I believe? Yeah, and his grandfather was a minister, so okay, it had been yeah. a long line of sort of, like, the male family members being that way. Sure. So, Martin was born to Reverend Michael King Sr. and Alberta King and was the second of three children. Uh, Martin's grandfather had begun the family's long tenure as pastors of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, serving from 1914 to 1931, and King's father would serve as the acting pastor from 1931 to to his death in 1984, acting as co-pastor when Martin Luther King Jr. would be the acting pastor until his death in 1968. So his dad actually outlived him. That's something I did not know. Yeah, and... It was, and it was sort of odd when I was researching his father, because I thought, wow, I mean, given the fact that 31 to 84 was a long time, I mean, and given how much that, that specifically, like, I didn't even sometimes touch on some of the stuff here, like, from what I had read up on, on researching this, apparently, like, his, or, like, ML, MLK's dad, his, his father, his wife had been, I think, either injured or killed in an assassination attempt after his father or after his son oh wow so that family went through a lot and we kind of and once we started getting into his history and how important like both martin luther king jr and then also malcolm x are in the whole civil rights movement people start to take notice both for positive and negative reasons but anyway uh martin's grandfather here we go okay King would attend the segregated public school in Georgia, receiving his Bachelor's of Arts in 1948 from Morehouse College in Atlanta. After three years of theological study at Crosser Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, wherein he would be elected president of the predominantly white senior class, which I felt was noteworthy because obviously at that time that was impressive for an African-American man to be the head of the senior class. And I... Obviously there's maybe a little bit less racism in the North, but... It's, the interesting thing with that too is I just want to really quickly mm-hmm. there's a misconception that uh, that that the North there's no racism in the North but that's very much not true uh, if if you're from the northern part of the United States you know everybody tends to bank on the South as being the racist people but like I think in the North the different the difference is it's a lot more like embedded. You have to kind of, like, look for it. In a lot of ways, it's more structurally built It's in. like institutional racism. Yeah. yeah, because if you think about things like, I mean, Stevens Point even had, uh, was was a uh, sundown town. So, you know, things like... Yeah, it was not only a sundown town. Point proper was a sundown town back from, like, even as far back, I think, as the 20s. But then, like, there's a small sort of suburb of Point, which is called Park... No, that, sorry. Which is called Park Ridge. And that was a red line district. And, and for those of you who don't know, like a red line district, literally they would put it on a map and they would literally start telling you where you could and couldn't accept African-Americans. And a lot of t- cases, the African-Americans would only be accepted in like the worst parts of town. Well, and of course, the idea of the sundown town was that basically if you're African-American, you were incentivized not to be here at night, meaning you were not to be in town and not to live yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, and there are specific, there actually were a bunch of, there's actually a bunch of housing laws out there. Uh, specifically directed towards that. So that's an, that's just an example of the type of institutional racism you might find in places like the mm-hmm. North and, and the South. It might be more outright. But, you know, obviously these are all, like, uh, these are all just, like, the majority 
it's what's viewed as the majority of how it happens, but clearly there could be cases of both, uh, and there are cases of both in the North and the South of both of all those types. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Anyway, so I I hate saying that because it makes it sound like it's flippant, but no, I'm not trying to be that. So, uh, King would be awarded his Bachelor's of Divinity, which is his BD diploma, basically meaning that you could then practice within the church or any religious group. And basically, it kind of said, okay, you're ready to go for TLR, for your priestly duties or ministerial duties. He got that in 51. Uh, following this, King enrolled in the graduate studies at Boston University, completing his residence for his doctorate in 1953 and received his degree in 1955. In Boston, King would meet and later marry Coretta Scott, who would become and would become the father of his two sons and two daughters. And he leaves behind his daughter and his son i'm pretty sure there's just the one son and one daughter that's still alive but i could be wrong oh okay because i know there's martin luther king jr the third and then i know there's um his daughter who had just recently had been in in the newspaper talking about his memory in comparison to what's been going on right now oh wow yeah so you know it, it does interconnect whenever we think about history history has a lot of bearing on stuff that we deal with right now i mean I mean, stuff that happened a week ago has bearing on what we think of right now. Um, so it's always happening, and we should take note of it so that we're constantly seeing how things evolve. Uh, 1954, King became the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. While being the pastor for that church, he uses podium to advocate for civil rights for African Americans, and at the same time, King would then be a member of the Executive Committee of the NAACP, or the, Na- or the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. In 1952, oh, sorry, um, yeah, for some reason I read that, it didn't sound right. Anyway, uh, originally, however, in 1952, King would accept the leadership position of the first great nonviolent demonstration in contemporary American history. That demonstration would be the bus boycott in Montgomery that lasted for 328 days. Uh, if anybody's wondering what boycott we're talking about, we are talking about the boycott that came from Rosa Parks refusing oh, to give like up her Rosa yeah, Parks? yeah refusing to give up her seat on at the front of a bus for a white man. After that, African Americans just said we're not riding the bus, and that actually did put a pretty hard pinch on the city. And in a lot of cases, like spending boycotts was one of the most effective ways in the beginning of getting change especially like the desegregation of lunch counters and stuff like that that was well see because a lot of what um martin luther king jr's protest tactics were uh were all about kind of disrupting the flow of everyday life for people to make to make it known yeah so like the bus boycotts and what's later going to be like sit-ins which Mm -hmm. is going to be the sit-ins are, are, are the example with, I don't know if you're going to bring this up later, but that's what the desegregating the lunch counters. That would be literally people yeah. just going, African-American people uh, just going into places they knew where they were not they were not allowed in it because of the rules of the town mm-hmm. and basically just sitting there and taking all sorts and types of awful harassment from oh, yeah. people. Within. Yeah, and as we get into sort of his strategies and his philosophy, we talk about where he gets the idea of nonviolence, because a lot of people would say, well, why not swing back? But he had a plan in place that, to him, would justify them taking that abuse, because in the end, the person who's trying to enforce all the racist laws in a town would look like the aggressor. But we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah, it was trying to paint... It was trying to... His 
idea of the genius of the way he tried to process and his tactics were basically sort of saying that you know because like we're gonna basically just show how evil racism is but by not acting back so that all of these awful acts instead of it just being two people fighting each other it's look at the people who did nothing versus this person who's being the awful aggressor yeah so it's really bringing racism to the forefront oh yeah and it it takes away in a lot of cases the argument that a lot of people in the white power structure of southern towns at the time would say because they would say that there was agitators that was usually how they referred to most demonstrators was agitators because in a southern mindset i mean as a good example of this is it's it's kind of weird if you ever look at like andy of mayberry the television show I always noticed that the town was meant to be in South Carolina, in, like, the South, basically. And every time something bad happened, it was always an outsider that was agitating. It was really weird. Like, I don't think they didn't intend for it to be that way, because that was sort of a show that was supposed to distance itself from what was going on. But it's sort of the same concept, right? These people that they don't know are coming into a town who's in the white... And the person in the minds of like a, a mayor who's white or the police department who's white is peaceful, air quotes peaceful, but underneath, you know, there's this horrid segregationism, there's this horrid intimidation, and basically what this method did was say, look, we aren't fighting back now. You don't have an excuse to hit us with a nightstick. Now you just look like a guy who's beaten a defenseless individual in the street. Right, and not to get too political, but just sort of like a modern equivalent of that that of that thought process. You know, the people are coming in and sort of ruining what's been what's going on like internally. Uh, if you look at just campaign rhetoric with uh, the way Donald Trump ran his campaign back in 2016, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's the famous quote where uh, he's talking about Mexican people and he's talking about them coming into the United States and calling them murderers and rapists mm-hmm. and really that's the same concept you know it's uh, he's he's basically saying all these these foreign people coming into the country and ruining it and sort of you know, it's it's barely just a scapegoat attitude and it's pretty much really yeah. just awful yeah and it was sort of the way that it it was played so if you don't think that that thought process is still out there folks it definitely still is yeah so uh anyway so dealing with the boycott itself the final act of that boycott for King, which would be the the one thing that makes his process of actually doing it all effective, was that the Supreme Court, Court rules that segregation on public transportation is unconstitutional. So they got rid of that. Number one, because the way that it, it ended up happening was, a, like I said, when we get down to like the sit-ins and stuff like that, a lot of African Americans would go and spend their money or would ride the bus and pay fare. When they remove that money, then the people in town who were saying originally they needed to be segregated need to set up and take notice that, oh, wait, this is going to hurt us financially. And in a lot of cases, that is sort of how they got changed. Well, in a lot of cases, just in anything in history, if you start affecting people's pocketbooks, uh, that's when a lot of people who might not have came to your side will start coming to your side because it turns out humans like money. Yeah. So... Let's see here. All right, during the boycott, King would be arrested. His home would be bombed. That happened often. He was being subject to personal abuse, but would regardless emerge as a first-ranked leader of the African-American community. Being arrested, there is a picture of it, too. And he is, like, 
stoic as all get out. He's like, he, it doesn't matter that he's been arrested. Whereas, like, it, it was, it shows to. He's the, he's, keeps that consummate sense of cool and calm. Yeah, it shows to the core the basis of nonviolence that even in such a situation where you are surrounded, you do not flinch, you do not take and swing back, because that was the part that would win it for them. So. I mean, there have also been a lot of other examples of nonviolent protests uh, yeah. throughout world history. Uh, you have the hunger, fa- the fasting, uh, the hunger like strikes that, mm-hmm. that uh, Gandhi did. In yeah, and, and in fact, he, yeah. he plays into Martin Luther King Jr. quite a lot due to sort of the way that he does that in India, right? They won their independence through nonviolent protests. Right, it, it, same thing in South Africa with Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Who, yeah, so but this thought philosophy goes uh, through a lot of a, a lot of history. It's... Yeah. Okay. Um, in 1957, King would be elected to the position of the president of the Southern Southern Christian Leadership Con- Conference. Yeah, there we go. And aided in the now burgeoning civil rights movement, as the president, he combined the Christian ideals with the operational techniques of Gandhi. The idea in that Gandhi, what he did. Obviously, a lot of people have heard of him, may not quite know exactly what he was known for, was he, he basically took the idea of independence from the British, because at the time, India was a colony from Britain, and he employed this idea of nonviolence. He employed this idea of hunger fasts as a way of bringing about change, because he knew that the one way the colonialists oftentimes respond to independence movements within their colony is to smash it. And the British did try to do that often. Well, because his thought was, if there's no military threat, then they can't come in and smash it without looking like... Monsters. Monsters, yeah. yeah. And that and it worked. And it was, for him, that was a whole justification of the process. Because King looked at that. He actually went to India and said, well, if it worked here, it has to work there, in the U.S. And that was sort of his, like, justification of it. Between 1957 and 1968, King would travel to over 6 million miles and spoke over 2,500 times, appearing wherever there was injustice, protest, and inaction. This includes, obviously, the bus boycott, we brought that up, the sit-ins mm-hmm. across the South that deals with a lot of the voter registration drives. And I, I think just a, just a brief a brief uh, pr- dive back into... Um, the fight for um, equal voting rights for African Americans, that um, has been something that basically a lot of people will say, you know, after after the amendment, isn't doesn't that basically solve the problem? Well, the problem is it doesn't, uh, because basically all a lot of the southern states are going to start start contracting all these ridiculous laws to be able to vote. So you have things like literacy tests, right, mm-hmm. or Things as awful as the grandfather clause. Yeah, the grandfather clause. If, you, if your grandfather or your grandfather's grandfather couldn't vote, then neither can you. Oh, and it was the idea, too, if your grandfather was a slave, that therefore you were still considered in the eyes of the law to be somebody who was not legi- legible to vote. Oh, it's awful. Just awful, awful things. Yeah. And they, they would have questions. Uh, they would have poll tests. Oh, poll tax, too. Poll that was bad. Poll taxes and poll tests. So, like, if you walked up and uh, you couldn't – I think – a literal example of one of the questions people were asked sometimes, like, uh, and the thing is, these not all of these things were administered equally. You know, no. If you were white, chances are none of that would happen to you. But then the next person in line could be an African American, uh, and they would be asked uh, to name all, 
all of the legislators in all of the counties in Alabama. Oh, yeah. I think that was legitimately, like, something like that was legitimately yeah. asked to someone who was trying to vote in this time period. So, the, it's hard to kind of fathom nowadays the sort of injustices that were being perpetrated on these people. Um, but the voting rights thing, that was a real thing that was happening, and it wasn't solved by the, the amendment, just like, kind of like, it kind of seems like it should have been, and obviously it should have been, uh, but it wasn't. And that's something that I think a lot of people tend to overlook. Yeah, and, and one of the big things, too, and you talked about poll taxes and poll tests, too. I mean, I remember specific ones, too, where they would talk about, like, what was the the state cap. Yeah, it was some very specifically, was, very, was, very specific. Like, I mean, even I wouldn't know. They, they're like supposed that. to be impossible to pass. Yeah. That was the goal, because it was any way that they could hinder people from voting. Yeah. And there are subsequent, I don't know if you talk about the freedom rides or not. Oh, yeah, I did. Um, but yeah, things like that where like uh, people would come down, activists would come down and try to help, uh, basically help people vote. You know, help people get registered to vote and help mm-hmm. them get voting on the, on the on the days. And those people sometimes were even white people who come down the south and the north, and they would even sometimes get like lynched. Oh yeah, no, and, they get beat hard. Yeah. There are there is a like I said, CNN's the '60s. They do the Long March to Freedom. They show like the film footage and there's stills of the guy being hit but there's film footage of the one like is a white man from i don't remember what state it was or where it may be is not important but that he was like beat really bad like there were gangs that would just come out from like the town and attack the buses and stopped in the station see and i again i i'm not going to get too political with this because i said we said we weren't going to get political but Mm -hmm. i will say that uh, there's currently legislation in Congress as part of a bill uh, that's addressing a lot of the things that we talked about with trying to get police accountability, but one mm-hmm. of the assets of that bill is actually the effort to make lynching a federal crime. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, for the life of me, cannot believe that it is not a federal crime. It is basically murder. It is, it is murder. It's, it's not murder. basically murder. It's it not is basically, murder. It is murder. It's murder based upon race. Yeah. Most of the time. Which is and a people, people have been lynched for other reasons, but uh, it generally it's, for whatever reason, it most of the time in America it's been because of race. Oh, yeah. And, and especially in the 1920s, that was a bad, bad time. Because there was a lynching at least once a week. I mean, all lynching is bad. Like, there's no sort of good lynching out there. Like, it's no. awful. Um, yeah, I can't applaud extrajudicial justice. Not sort of good lynching. There's no good lynching. No. Lynching is an awful, awful thing. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it happened in... And honestly, a frighteningly large amount, if you look back at the numbers, mm-hmm. um, the Ku Klux Klan and other hate groups, and mm-hmm. the amount of lynching that happened during this time period is just absolutely ridiculous. No, oh, it, it's massive. Like, the numbers... Any, any lynching is awful, but, like, if you look at the numbers, it's just fascinatingly awful how bad it was. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. When we talked... Okay, so when I had um, Professor Willis's, the guy who talked about African-American history, he showed us a graph where it was, like, lynching deaths as recorded by the NAACP from, like, 1875 to, like, 1968. And between, like, 1900 and, I think, 1935, the lynching deaths were upwards in, like, the thousands a year. Like, that, I mean, and it wasn't even, like, and I I know this may seem gruesome, but they even made these, like, public events for summer people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it, it would be, like, when you we talked about the sundown towns... A lot of cases, if an African-American man was caught after sundown, there was a posse that would get him, 
and could arbitrarily charge him with something and then just hang him in the like forest. And you know, newspapers and stuff would literally report these things as events, like just like anything that would be happening in the community. Yeah, it was sort of like almost like a, it was it was like a sick public event though. It was just like amazingly terrible. Yeah, it's just it, it's completely awful and it's just an atrocity and I cannot believe that it happened. It's so. It, on that note, obviously we talk about like the freedom rides when the voter registrations. You know, he was there, and the freedom rides too were basically sort of the idea of taking. Actually, and originally it was the concept of taking all of these people down to protest the fact that even though there had been some federal action on the part of at this point in time it would have been the Kennedy administration, they were basically stating that the federal rule that you could not bar an African-American from trans or like public transport on a bus was still being in effect, regardless of the fact that the Supreme Court said no. And a lot of people, both black and white, who went in volunteering to go in, got beat pretty much within an inch of their lives. I know the buses were firebombed, too. Like, the, the violence was extreme. Oh, it was absolutely awful. Yeah, it was bad. I mean, and, and then on top of that, obviously, with the sit-ins, we already talked about those. Two, he was involved between those years dealing with, like, Mississippi Summer, yep. where that was another voter registration drive, because overall, as King understood the politics of things, was that in order to get the things he wanted passed, he had to play the political game, which was basically getting African Americans registered to vote, because what we touched on originally, one of the things you, you noted, which is saying about, like, the poll tests and everything, one of the things I noted, too, was that a lot of times it was the discretion of the person at like the courthouse would okay. literally have the person show up and say, sorry, we're closed. Even though that person says, no, you're open. And then from there, that person would then say like, are you causing trouble? And then the, it, it was always like at a level of intimidation and was always unfair or. It was, it was scare tactics, Jake. Yeah, pretty it much. Was, it exactly was. what it was, was scare tactics because uh, their whole thought process was we're going to scare you into not doing the things that you're allowed to do because we don't want things to change and we don't want our lives to change the way they are right now. So we're yeah. going to scare you uh, because that's our best method to keep things the way that they are. Yeah, and then later on, even earliest during that um, movement, but or later on especially, when you get into like Selma, when they were starting to do that, march through Selma over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the state troopers beat them with night sticks and tear gas on horseback. It was another one of those, intimidation like... Intimidation tactics. It was not only intimidation, but that was now, like, outright violence. And, and yeah, intimidation and awful brutality. Oh, yeah. And um, then, you know, it, it was one of those things, too, that the television did help immensely during this time because King understood how television worked. It, it wasn't just, like, a background to, like... Oh, you only watch it for cartoons, sort of thing, or any like mindless entertainment. He realized if, you, if Americans across the United States could see it live happening in their living room, it would affect them. Because they'd never, most people who were sort of middle class and may have been college educated had never even experienced that. Well, because we talked about in the North, especially uh, if you're not, if, especially in the North, you know, if with it, when it's, when it's most of the time it's more. Uh, sort of that set into the society racism mm -hmm. if you're in the north and you're not sort of trained to see that it's gonna be a lot harder for you to even be able to detect that sort of racism because you're not looking for it so yeah. you're not going to see a lot of those other things that might be going on on the table because if you're not looking for it chances are you're not going to find it no to go off your other point though about the media 
Uh, I think it's important to also remember, I don't know if you can bring him up or not, but uh, what happened with Emmett Till. Oh, yeah. So he's the teenager who goes down to Mississippi to, I think it's his uncle, spend the summer with his uncle. His mom sends him down there because she thinks it'd be good for him to kind of see what it's like down there. Mm -hmm. Uh, He allegedly ends up whistling at a white woman. She... We don't even know if he actually... She actually admitted... She admitted, like, a couple years ago that didn't happen. Yeah. Or it didn't... Like, cat-called. Like, she said that he he cat-called her. And... Recently, she said that it didn't happen. Um, But, nonetheless, you have a couple people who basically go to this guy's uncle's house, kidnap the kid, uh, and they beat the crap out of him and kill him. Oh, no, they don't even, like... They just torture him, and then they, like... Yeah, they do, they do beat the crap out of him and they torture him. Oh yeah, and, and then, then basically his body is so mutilated. Um, the but the point I was trying to uh, yeah, yeah. to bring up is his mom decides to have an open casket, uh, and the photo of Emmett Till's body I believe was printed on the cover of Time. I think. Yeah, it was Time, and then it was a couple other news. Uh, but basically, that gets disseminated all the way across the country, and then people are becoming face to face with this brutal picture of what it could be like to be African-American in the South, and they're, and they're seeing this, and a lot of people are going, this is absolutely awful, what can we do to help, you know? Yeah. Well, and it sort of is, it kind of translates to today, I know, like we said, we keep saying we're not going to make it political, but even in showing it, you know, across a spectrum of people, not even with the internet, social media, it actually has made things a little bit harder to be exposed to, but with these protests, you know, most people that I know who are Caucasian, who may have lived in a specific lifestyle, obviously me and Lucas were not that way, but people that I knew who've lived in this town forever, they've never experienced this before. Because to them, this is like, how could this happen? How could a, like, they, they're so like shocked by it. And they don't understand that like, this is not the first time it's happened. This is the first time you're seeing it like this. Yeah, and that's exactly because in in the north a lot of times if you don't have the like I was saying if you don't have the need to see it, a lot of times you're not gonna see it. Yeah. Unless you're looking for it. Yeah. So, moving forward, one of the things that he would do was that also between 1957 and 1968, King would author five books about his exploits and numerous articles explaining his position on the civil right on civil rights and his issues with the state of the United States at the same time. He would participate in and lead the massive protest in Birmingham, Alabama, which caught the attention of the world and would pro- provide the impetus for his coalition of cons- conscience and his manifesto for his civil rights revolution. Basically stating that in Birmingham, I believe, I'm not sure if it was in Birmingham, I believe it was in Birmingham where they used fire hoses and police dogs for yeah, protesters. Yeah, and he would be arrested, and it, I mean, it's so, like, astounding how much abuse these people take and just get up and keep on moving. Like, there were people who were volunteering, would get beat down, and would say, put me in again. Like, that, that to me is heroism beyond any measure that I can think of. Because that, that's somebody who is stating, I will go in unarmed, be beat to within an inch of my life, and I will do it again, because that is what's important. And that is especially what people start to like about this movement is the fact that this is like a heroism for a lot of people because this is a right movement for them. I also do want to say that um, just to, just to be clear, uh, 
We are still talking about MLK right now. When we get to Malcolm X, we will tell the other side. Yeah. Uh, and we're not saying that this side of the movement is better than the militant side of the movement. We are not taking stands. No. We're just trying to explain the appeal that people are feeling towards right. this yeah. part of the movement. Yeah, and, and the movement as a whole is the civil rights movement. And you have the nonviolent and and the more militant side, and they both make up the whole civil rights mm-hmm. movement. Yeah. So, just just to clarify. Yeah. No, sorry if that sounded like I was like preaching. That that wasn't the intention. But yeah, I mean, in that idea. Overall, that was what they were feeling, and that is the point of this. Ah, here we are. Ah, here we go. So King would become a major political figure as well as he became involved with the voter drives in Alabama and the voter registration of blacks across the South and North. King would confer with John F. Kennedy during his presidency, especially during the early parts, and it should be noted that for all the good that Kennedy does, he really didn't actually want to deal with civil rights. He, even though he is considered to be sort of like the liberal president, the thing that we, when we think about Democrats as like modern Democrats, he's the person we think about. Kennedy's main focus was like the global Cold War, like between them and the Soviet Union. He really didn't have any sort of thing going on with race relations in the United States. And when he was assassinated and Johnson came in, Johnson came in with this idea of what he called the Great Society Project. Where, and, and he was always about social justice in general. And so he worked in campaign for Johnson and his presidency, and that helped him in a lot of ways because Johnson was able then to get King what he wanted while King would help Johnson with his re-election campaigns, and they both kind of played that game. I was often, I mean, and if you ever want to read about Johnson and his way of dealing with, in Washington, it is actually fascinating the way he, like, did a mixture of like deal making and bullying and like calling for favors and asking from favors from other people he had like worked with and it was it was he was like just he was a dealer and it was kind of amazing what he could do well because johnson had spent a really long time in the united states senate yeah as being a senator um yeah and, and he had that experience in him which really helped king but at the same time too one of the things that we should note is that Johnson was also a tad suspicious of King because he wasn't sure what the movement would do. So even though I don't note it in here, one of the things that he has is he, the FBI and Edgar J. Hoover, who was the director of the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover. Or J. Edgar Hoover. Did I say Edgar J. Hoover? Sorry. Yeah, you did. That's okay. Um, he would have the house wiretapped and they would tape his conversations and they would use that information as a means that if necessary, they could then incriminate King and basically sort of, like, sweep the rug out from under him. Which is pretty wholly ridiculous. If you it really it. is in hindsight, yeah. Um, so, moving on in his life, and on, on October 14th of 1964, King would become the youngest man to receive the Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 35. When notified of his selection, King announced that he would turn over the prize money of $45,123 to the furtherance of the Civil Rights Movement. Um... And in between that in 1964 to 1968, he's part of the March on Washington, where he does the I he does his famous I Have a Dream speech. He is there for the signing of the 1965 Civil Rights Act, and then after that, what again occurs within the Civil Rights Movement is that you start to see the rise of a more militant faction, for their own justifiable reasons, because at this point in time now. Resistance to the like civil rights movement is starting to harden. You're starting to see people. Well, because are... you see, there's progress happening. Uh, anytime there's progress, you're gonna usually see the other side sort of try to bounce back up and be and even more aggressive into, than they had. Yeah, been. and then try to push it back. Yeah, and that's what started to happen. So, 
during that time, there was also issues in Vietnam, and that was playing into it because disproportionately a number of African Americans did not want to fight for a government that did not consider them to be citizens. Well, and, and the draft is yeah the the draft of the Vietnam War is shown to disproportionately target people of minorities. Uh, there's studies out there you can actually find that shows yeah. that African Americans and other minorities were drafted a lot more than white people were. Well, and it was due to the fact that a lot of times there was a little bit of quid pro quo going on. Or if your father was like a senator or some somebody with money or influence, oftentimes it could get you out of it. I know, like, in the Civil War, there were a lot of cases where people, like, rich Americans during the Civil War, during the draft, would literally buy out somebody else for their kid's place in order to keep them from going off the war. And oftentimes it was, and in that case, obviously, disproportionately, it would have been somebody of poor status, but in the in Vietnam, it was somebody of, of color in most cases. And so that was becoming more and more violent because, obviously, Vietnam was spiraling out of control and people were becoming more and more dissatisfied, and the idea of nonviolence was becoming a lot less palpable, especially when you started to have anti-war protests that mixed with, you know, like civil rights protests about things, and you know the police would show up, and state troopers would show up, and they'd start whacking. Well, just like Kent State. Yeah, Kent State was well, even though it was in the '70s, right? That was a good example of that. Yeah. There was violence used on on peaceful protesters, in which case people actually were killed. Thirteen people were killed, in that, and. As a result, you know, King starts to look at his movement, and towards later 1966, 67, 68, he tries to actually move north. He tried to do a drive for fair housing up in Chicago, and he was met with vehement white racism in Chicago, like, like white power racism, which was like... Like, a lot of people originally could point an accusatory finger in the north at the south and say, look at how backwards these people are. But all of a sudden, once they were under the microscope, they started to get just as defensive as everybody else. Which is awful, obviously. Yeah. And unfortunately for King, as a quote he made towards the end of his life, he did actually state that with the rise of the militant faction, which included originally Malcolm X, as well as a number of other very notable individuals, in the Black Panther movement and the idea of black supremacy rather than equal rights for both. We should also point out that not all black militants believed in black supremacy. Oh, well, but the rise of that one, like, yeah, no, we didn't, we're not associating the two of them together, but, but separately, sort of, the black militants and on top of which, sort of separately, the rise of the idea of black supremacy or, like, the supremacy of African Americans over whites. King was quoted as saying that what he originally had stated in 65 was his dream had become a nightmare. And, you know, it, he was starting to have to look at how the movement was going. Um, unfortunately for him, he did not get a chance to see through what he was planning on. And that brings us to April 4th, 1968. So at 6.01 p.m., King would become one of many victims of assassination in 1968. In fact, I think Roger Kennedy, or no, Robert Kennedy, was the first major political person to be shot and killed. 68 was a really fucked up year. Yeah, it was bad. And actually, there's a, there's a book that I'm reading currently about it, and it is fascinating how awful of a year that is. Like, that, that like, Paul's in comparison to this year. Like, we've had some shit happen in this year. 68 was bad. 68 was real bad. 
Hey, I mean, don't don't roll this here yet. Rolling, we're six, we're in six months, man. We're in June. We got time. Oh god. Oh no. Well, we've already got murder horns, but apparently we've skipped over that. Um, but yeah, what happens is he's standing on the balcony of room 306 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, what he was actually planning on doing that night, or the, during the days after that, was that he was actually going to go and advocate for uh, public sanitation workers who were African American. So he'd given a speech earlier that day, hadn't he? He did, and it was kind of weird, because in the speech he literally says, I am not going to fear any man. I mean, I, he said... We may, you may get to the promised land, but I may not get there with you. It was, it was kind of oddly eerie as to yeah, how, he like... he kind of predicted his own death. You know, not in, like, a conspiracy theory sort of way, but, yeah, he kind of in a really, really kind of, like, whoa, that's really weird. Because what ended up happening was, according to the final verdict of the coroner, King had suffered a fatal bullet wound from a long-range rifle, which had entered through his right cheek, lodging in his spine. And would later pass away after an emergency chest surgery at St. Joseph's Hospital at 7.05 p.m. that night. And a little bit of a note on what happens after his assassination is that first it was Robert Kennedy who was John F. Kennedy's brother. And Robert Kennedy had been campaigning too for a sort of peaceful coexistence of civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to work out, you know, how to deal with Vietnam and things like that. And then immediately almost somewhat immediately after that within the same year you have mlk getting killed by james earl ray who originally according to his father there was a testimony said his james wasn't racist but he was going to kill him because he was a communist which was an ass backwards concept because he wasn't he's, he's assumed it by that concept he was a communist well i mean whatever the motive is it was fucking awful that yeah that happened and so what happened is in 68 what added to the terrible of that year was that after he was assassinated people got mad people got oh, real mad of and course. they had this guy riots. was all about anti-violence and he is assassinated yeah i know and he there were riots across major cities over the united states and abroad i think there was a, a massive riot like riot slash protest in paris over that and it was like they burned whole city blocks down. There was, if there wasn't race, I'm pretty sure there was mass race violence in the streets due to this. And it was like that for a lot of people was sort of the death of the dream. But in it, what happens after it is after the 1960s and 1970s, yes, there is a lot that needs to be done, but we have not forgotten what he did. And that by far should serve as a huge lesson. No, I mean, I remember listening to the I Have a Dream speech many times going through school and learning about MLK and all of the great things he did and what he stood for. Yeah. And it's sort of that concept, right? His Even though he may have died in a way that was very jarring for a lot of people, he did leave a legacy that is to this day sort of the shining light of what nonviolence can do. Right, in that concept. At least in an American perspective. Within the American perspective. But uh, going sort of to his philosophy, so we can sort of compare him, and then when we compare Malcolm, we'll do the same thing, is that King's philosophy towards the fight for civil rights came primarily from his biblical background. Again, because he was a minister, he was brought up in the New Testament ideals. The idea of, you know, love thy neighbor, the idea of turning the other cheek, and those who live by the sword, die by the sword sort of things. He actually did quote that during the 50, 
52 or 53 bus boycott and stating that violence is self-defeating and that he that lives by the sword shall die by the sword, which is a really sort of concise way to sort of sum up the way he thought nonviolence. He just basically said that there's no way that violence will work out the violence we're currently experiencing. All it's going to do is intensify it. Because now they're going to give them the feel that they need to then act out against you, and then you'll act out against them, and yeah, you'll get nowhere. The king often organized his views of the challenge or challenges to racial equality as the triple evils, which were poverty, racism, and militarism. Those three things that he did strive to try to deal with. Poverty, especially because a lot of African Americans were in the poverty, below the poverty line or at the poverty line, and that had a huge effect on you know how they could vote and all these other things. And then established sort of a five-step process for nonviolent social change, which was number one, information gathering, number two, education, three, personal commitment to fighting it, number or yeah, number three, personal commitment to fighting it, number four, negotiation, number five, being direct action, and number six, reconciliation. Axiom and six-step process, and I miscounted that, so good on me. King's overall aim was achieving equality for African Americans via nonviolent methods. King's travels to India in 1959 would provide him with the tools he needed for this crusade, and he used those nonviolent methods basically in seeing the, the sort of rise of an independent India as a good justification of that. Um, however, that doesn't bring him not under criticism, because more militant members of the civil rights movement would criticize his methods as a sellout to the racist system they were trying to fight. His and, and in some cases, too, uh, one of the things is that Malcolm X and him actually feuded for a while before mm -hmm. Malcolm X actually did sort of start to see the way things were going in a different sort of light. Well, we'll explain that if, probably tomorrow. But uh, most of the people in the mil sort of the militant ver or forms of the civil rights movement felt that he was basically kind of keeping them defenseless. The idea that nonviolence means taking it and not saying anything about it and just pretending everything's fine. Uh, he rebuttals that by saying that those that see nonviolence as active weakness fail to understand that nonviolence does not mean non-resistance. And that, in kind of a nutshell, is what he was striving for. The idea is, you know, he could, you could, there's not resisting what he's saying don't do but you don't have to strike back. And, you know, it takes a huge commitment on somebody to do that. So. All right. Well, that is Martin Luther King Jr. side of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's MLK. Uh, he uh, had a lot of really interesting and really powerful ideas. Mm -hmm. And, yeah they, yeah, they definitely serve as a important reminder of that part of the movement. Mm -hmm. I mean... I'm good to keep going if you're good to keep going to do that. I'm good to keep going. If the audience is willing to settle in with us, we're not trying well, to sort if we, of... if we decide to settle them in, then... No, no, <laughs> then we're not they trying They can to... always hit pause on this. Yeah, you can always come back tomorrow, everybody. And that's okay. They can that's come good. back tomorrow. We don't have to. Hey, we're living it. So, <laughs> you know what? I'm down to actually do this. I'm ready to... I'm actually ready to, to, uh, to tackle this. So, on the opposite side of the spectrum is Malcolm X. Malcolm X is not his actual name, though. Okay, that's the name he picks up after joining what is called the Nation of Islam, but we'll get into it a little bit later. Oh, just a side note, by the way. I, I don't mean that this is a labor by any means. We're not trying to belay the fact no, that no. we're doing this. We 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 uh we obviously you know, we 
are passionate about what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We just don't want to make too long of a podcast for anyone to sit through all in one sitting. But we think this is important, so we might as well keep on yeah. keep on going here. So, um, El Hajj Malik El Shabazz, which is his given name is Malcolm X, was born Malcolm Little on May 19, 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. Malcolm was born to parents Louise Norton Little, who was a homemaker, and Earl Litton, who was an out Earl Little, who was an outspoken Baptist minister and avid supporter of the Black nationalist leader Marcus Garvey. Which, uh, for those of you who don't know who Marcus Garvey is, he came around, I believe, in the early 1920s as sort of this guy proponent of creating like an independent nation of Africa. Well, he wrote what was called the Back to Africa movement. Yeah, he, he begins the Back to Africa movement. And I think Liberia has a lot to do with that because the, the idea was that Back to Africa would mean that literally all the African Americans would go from the United States and head back to their home country. Or what would it be considered their home country? Well, and the thing with Liberia is there's, there's a reason that sounds very similar to the word liberty that was done intentionally. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in that point, you know, even at that time, there was this civil rights push. It didn't just start in the 60s. It started as early as the 20s. I mean, I mean, there there was a civil rights push ever since, you know, the annulment of slavery in 1865. There's always been a civil rights yeah. push in, in the United States of America, even the, you know, to today, uh, which is good. Yeah. Because obviously civil rights is something that should definitely keep being fought for by everybody, you mm-hmm. know? So, due to his father's involvement in black nationalism, however, Ma- Malcolm's early years were often com- or comprised of moving homes due to threats and the later murder of his father by white supremacists and the eventual hospitalization of his mother due to his father's murder would land him in a series of foster homes. So, sort of as a comparison here, that again when people would look at it and say, well it seems like you guys are being a little bit favorable, the way that Malcolm's life starts in comparison to Martin Luther King Jr.'s widely different. Well, if you look at stability, 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 stability versus, um, like, the stability of Martin Luther King Jr.'s childhood versus the relative, um, instability, instability yeah. of, of, uh, of what's happening here to who's going to be known eventually as Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe you didn't put this in here, but I think at one point their house gets burned down. Oh, actually, yeah, I, I did, I did note that, um, that originally, yeah, that, at one point in time, they their house was firebombed and they escaped injury, but obviously, you know, they actually what was weird too was that I, I actually read the police report. They have it on, on sort of like a, a scan file for the uh, the city of Omaha, and that they basically ruled his murder as an accident, and they ruled his mother's hospitalization as an accident. They didn't go into it. They didn't even care. They they just said screw it. It it doesn't matter. Yeah, so when you, when you look at um, what happens to young, I'm just going to say Malcolm. young Malcolm. Because yeah, we'll call him Malcolm. Because I, I know that's not his given name, but that is the name he eventually ends up taking. When you look at what happens to him at a young age with what happens to his mother being hospitalized and his dad being killed and his house being firebombed and really just no, no possible sense of repercussions for no. anybody who did any of those things, I can understand where his anger comes from. Like Yeah. And then when I'm reading it, I mean, like, as personally in myself, obviously, when as a historian, you obviously have, kind of have to be objective. But even in reading it, I'm like, I could get where you'd be mad. Because, number well, one, it's not only just him. You can be objective and still be empathetic. Yeah, exactly. That's, it's exactly how it should work. And, and even in reading it, you know, it, I, 
I don't note this in my notes, but he actually had brothers and sisters. They all went to foster homes after that. And in 46, Malcolm's close friend, Malcolm Shorty Jarvis, would be arrested and convicted on charges of larceny and breaking and entering because at this point in time, Malcolm had gone down a path where he did not see himself doing any good. And it came, obviously, from the death of his father. The traumatic event led him to getting involved in crimes that would later land him in prison. Well, I mean, and to sort of paraphrase maybe the way he was thinking, you know, when society wrongs you that many ways... Oh, yeah. You, a lot of times you might not generally give a damn about what society has to say no. about what your actions are. No, and in his position, if I put myself in issues, I wouldn't either, to be honest. I would carry that baggage, absolutely. And he does. Um, when he... And you, I mean, in, and you couple that with just, sorry, just... No, go ahead, or, yeah. Some of the general, just awful atrocities that are happening around him that aren't specifically happening to him, mm-hmm. but are still happening. It, it's really easy to see how that reinforces his world, his current worldview at that point, where it's, it's like, you know, at this point there's really, like, nothing good happening out there. Everything is, you know, basically... It, he feels like society is shitting him there's nothing he can do so why not shit on society exactly yeah it's the idea of like fighting back in the, in the concept of like it, I will break your rules so I don't recognize what you mean and one of the one of the amazing or not amazing but well amazingly terrible things that happens is that when I would like to note that he comes from Nebraska even though that's technically not considered in the south that's sort of considered in like the I wouldn't even consider that like the midwest of America but Areas like Nebraska, Oklahoma, had a high African-American population because during the Civil War, a lot of African-Americans would move there, either prior to the Civil War or during or after, depending. But in Oklahoma, I noticed a lot of people on Facebook bringing up this particular event, the massacre of Black Wall Street in Oklahoma, where basically a white mob just goes into like a very, not affluent, but very you know, very prosperous part of black community and literally burns it to the ground. They kill people, they burn it to the ground. They even, like, treat it as, like... They actually... They have postcards of that event, of people who were killed, people who were being arrested. You know, it, it's horrible. And the way, like, that... And that was in the 1920s and 1930s. To Malcolm, who probably knew about those events, I would be taking that as justification for this already mm-hmm. saying like look at what they do like this is awful i mean it i obviously cannot speak from a position of like fully knowing the african-american it's experience. hard for someone with his background to still have a, a large sense of sympathy for people no. who he perceives are doing all these things in a lot of cases not even perceived are doing all these yeah, things yeah it's not it's not perceived is not the right word yeah, yeah. it's okay it, yeah it, he's just in a, in a position where in which he sees a lot of bad and he's pretty certain that that's going to keep happening yeah and uh and yeah he takes upon himself to basically sort of fight back um while he's in prison however malcolm uses his time to further his education so that's that's actually pretty good um and later would be introduced to the nation of islam through a meeting of his with his brother reginald who was a converted believer uh the nation of islam for those of you who don't know obviously is the islamic section of religion in the united states and they exist by this time Albeit they are small for what it's comparatively at that time. So a few hundred, but just coming out of the nation of Islam, it's 
it's not necessarily it, it's it's based in Islamic faith, but it's more of a black power movement than it is yeah. than it is a faith yeah. movement, which is important to sort of to point out. Yeah. Um and I mean it's to the point where like Actually, what's really interesting is the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is the group that um, doesn't it notify them as a te- like a domestic. It does terrorist call them. Group? It calls them, yeah. It calls them a domestic terrorist group, which I'm not saying that. that no, it's just it's just the way that they mention. But there might be yeah. certain sections sections of them that, that do things that are. It, it's just an interesting. Uh, it's interesting classification. Yeah. Um. And, and like I said, well, we can't speak to the numbers obviously because data even in itself can be interpreted in many ways. Yeah, and I'm not taking any sides here. I'm no, just I'm purely either. stating facts. But. but regardless of what happened, obviously through this idea of sort of black power mixed with the idea of sort of Muslim faith, even in it, for Malcolm's sake, who as I researched, he did believe in the faith. He was very he sure. was a very devout yeah. believer, but. Intrigued by this religion, Malcolm begins studying the teachings of the NOI leader, which is Nation of Islam. I kind of abbreviated to make it easier to read. Elijah Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad taught whites, or taught that white society actively worked to keep African Americans from empowering themselves and achieving political, economic, and social success, which obviously fit into the way Malcolm saw things. He's yep. like, well, clearly that's true because I'm seeing it in front of me. You know, I. Everything that's happened up until this point in my life is, is a justification of that viewpoint. Within the structure of the NOI, Muhammad also called for a state of their own, separate from one inhabited by whites. So again, this idea of sort of like a, a kind of a back to Africa, but not quite in the same scale. Um, by 1952, when Malcolm would be paroled from prison, he was a devout follower and accepted the new surname X. He considered the little, the last part, his last name, as a slave name and chose X to signify his lost tribal name. So in that regard, and obviously he she shed what he considered to be sort of like the white man's name that was tacked onto it. To sort of clarify why he might have felt that way, mm-hmm. um, back in uh, slavery, what would happen a lot of times would be um, people who would be working on a given plantation would just be kind of automatically given their their master's last name. Or or like a yeah like a or nickname or something. I mean, and the other really unfortunate thing is there have been uh, plenty of cases in which. Well, not even just unfortunate, they're really awful things. There have been mm-hmm. plenty of cases in which, you know, masters would be sleeping with slaves and... They're not even sleeping with, they'd be raping slaves, yeah. Yeah. Or, or yeah, I... Yeah. I, I doubt there's any consensual relationships there. Yeah. Um, but then a lot of those t- a lot of times those children would have the, the master's name. So the idea of that um, with Malcolm X is to say, okay, I'm getting rid of this name because it was never mine to begin with. It was... Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was, again, it was a sort of a protest because, I mean, if anybody ever watches sort of the Roots TV miniseries that was sort of brought about in the 70s and then the newer one that came out, obviously, like, you you see that brought up in Roots where, like, Kunta Kinte, who's the titular character in that, and then it sort of passes through his family lineage. Yep. He becomes Toby. And then, like, his father is Chicken George, or his son is Chicken George, right? I mean, yeah. like, their tribal name is pretty much, like, completely thrown out. And that doesn't just happen, too, within, like, African-American society. It happens across a lot of societies, like Native American society, where their language gets basically, like, like, you can't speak it. You speak, like, the white man's English, and that's it. And then their names would be changed, right? So, it, I I'd absolutely understand that. Like, that that feeling of having your identity taken from you, cultural identity, is what moves him to do this. He's an, however, he's an intelligent and articulate individual. 
Malcolm would be appointed as a minister and a national spokesman to the NOI in 1953. Um, Malcolm's role as a minister and spokesman gave him the opportunity to expand the organization. Uh, he basically did it through constructing new mosques and the expansion of older or existing ones. And then on top of that, he had the utilization of mainstream media to sort of spread the message. He used newspaper columns, radio, and television to communicate their message across the United States. So again, like MLK, Malcolm X knows the value of the mainstream media, how yeah. it can affect and in, you know, influence how people feel. Malcolm's charisma-driving conviction attracted an astounding number of new members to the NOI, and Malcolm would be largely credited, for good reason, with the increase in NOI membership from 500 in 1952 to 30,000 in 1963. That's massive. Like, he is making some serious work, and it is showing off. And this shows, like, he, he knows what he's doing. He's meant for this, almost. Uh, with his obvious talent for working a crowd... Now I say that, that may sound slightly patronizing. I don't know. Uh, if it is intended as that way, I don't mean it like that. Um, Malcolm becomes a media magnet. He's actually featured in a week-long television special with Mike Wallace in 1959, or 1959, not 1969, called The Hate That Hate Produced. This program would explore the fundamentals of the NOI and track Malcolm's emergence as one of its most popular leaders. Um, slight issue, however, and we start to even notice this now, is that Malcolm's star of sorts, his spotlight, is starting to outshine the group's leader. And that's not making him very happy. In September of 1960, Malcolm, during this time, however, he would continue to move forward. In September of 1960, Malcolm would be invited to the official function, or to official functions of several African nations at the UN General Assembly. He met multiple heads of state, such as Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, Ahmed Sekou Touré of Guinea, Kenneth Kanda Kenneth of, of the Zambian African National Congress. At the same time, during this assembly, Malcolm would meet publicly with Cuba's Fidel Castro. Castro was impressed with Malcolm X and he later invites him to visit Cuba. As far as I could tell, I wasn't sure if he actually did take him up on that offer, but I can imagine he might have. Uh, that's uh, where, however, the feds start to take some in, some attention here. As the 60s get moving and the race relations become contentious, Malcolm's role in the NOI and his vivid personality brought him into the spotlight of the FBI, wherein his attachment and association with known suspected communists would be of great interest to them. Often Malcolm's movements and statements were closely watched through bugs, wiretaps, cameras, etc. So not only was Mal or not only was MLK being watched, so was Malcolm. And they basically took meetings like that where they had, you know, committed communists within the within certain circles that he met with and said he might be a communist too, we need to be careful. Of course, in most cases they were just doing this as a means of seeing if this black militant was of any particular danger to them. Uh, Malcolm's association in faith, however, would be dealt a heavy blow in 1963. Up until this point in time, he'd been a devout follower, but when he became aware that the leader of the NOI had secretly had relations with upwards of six women within the organization and had borne basically uh, illegitimate children out of them, this sort of constituted like a serious violation of the nation's teachings. And Malcolm at first didn't believe it 
until he started asking around and there were all these people who were confirming what other people were saying he's like oh this is real this is actually happening and what happened was muhammad at this point in time had actually kind of been his mentor so he comes to malcolm and says keep this quiet do not tell anybody they do not need to know and malcolm says morally i can and that pisses muhammad off because he's like i thought i could trust you and now you are backpedaling in his mind um he has a lot of deterioration at this point and he's still a he's still a public figure but during that time too the NOI starts to actually start to sort of like silence him because as he's going out and speaking about what's happening inside the organization with the the um the adulterous affairs they're like shutting him down from public speaking you know, that he's still keeping his ministerial position he's still you know but they, they're saying no you cannot talk and that's that's further irritating him basically at the point where he's like why are you silencing me if this is needs to be told because it's not right uh, malcolm does take some additional flack for a comment that he made regarding the assassination of president kennedy in 1963 stating that kennedy never foresaw that the chickens would come home to roost so soon now what that basically meant was that he sort of saw the kennedy assassination as a sign of the times the things were downfalling because within his understanding of like the shall we say the nation of islam there is this concept that like white society was on the brink of collapse and he was seeing this as a justification of that which clearly i mean through that point the assassination of a very well-known president definitely would shock a lot of people uh to that point though he was banned from public speaking for 90 days again in march of 1964 the next year malcolm's membership to the noi would be revoked and he decided to act on his own about civil rights on March 26th, Malcolm would meet Martin Luther King Jr. for the first and only time and attended the Senate's debate on the Civil Rights Bill. Uh, like I pointed out in the MLK portion of this podcast, the two of them did not see eye to eye, and oftentimes um, Malcolm was a very vocal sort of criticizer of MLK's position. He, They had a interview that I watched that I got a good chunk of sort of my philosophy from and understanding their relationship. But basically, he was sort of saying, like, Martin Luther King Jr. says nonviolence, but this is exactly what the white men want. You know, his viewpoint was nonviolence will not solve the problem, which, again, in his mind, through everything he experienced, was a justifiable outcome. Right. Yeah. Uh, in this, he would, in AR, sorry, I thought I said civil rights bill. Yeah. In April of 64, Malcolm would deliver his speech, The Ballot or the Bullet wherein he advised African-Americans to exercise their right to vote wisely or take up arms against the government if the oppression continued. So he wasn't losing that militant spark. He still said, if either you vote, because at this point in time, by 64, they're starting to get the voting drugs moving, or we're going to get armed and we're going to turn this thing over because we're not going to take it anymore, right? And in a lot of African-Americans' minds at this time, they absolutely still believe, like, yeah, they could, they could drag back all the way to their ancestors first coming here in the united states and say yeah we definitely deserve something from this because we're done taking it on the on the chin and not being able to swing back a lot of people felt like that was a totally understandable reaction and for a lot of people do have the reason to back it up um let's see here okay during that same month malcolm would leave for pilgrimage to mecca 
and he returned with a new outlook of integration of races, stating that he had met blonde-haired, blue-eyed men I could call my brothers. Basically stating that within the Islamic faith, there were whites and blacks. And it was, for him, it had sort of challenged his original viewpoint, that it was just blacks only. Let's start to see sort of a change. Sorry about that. And effectively, he started to change his tune. Uh, throughout 1964, Malcolm's conflict with the NOI, NO, NOI did intensify with multiple threats and intimidation. In February, the leader of Temple No. 7 ordered the bombing of Malcolm's car, which actually a F FBI agent was actually tagged along in that because he was acting undercover. And apparently what happened was he was literally asked to plant a bomb in Malcolm's car, which if I were that guy in that position, I would definitely tread carefully. In March, Muhammad told Boston Minister Louis X that hypocrites like Malcolm should have their heads cut off. In April the 10th, the uh, April 10th edition of Muhammad Speaks featured a cartoon depicting Malcolm's bouncing severed head. June, July, and August of that year, a series of phone threats towards Malcolm's family. In February 14th, 1965, Malcolm's home was destroyed by fire um, just before they were planning on moving. A week later... On February 21st, 1965, Malcolm's enemies would succeed, however, in their objective when, at a speaking engagement in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom, three gunmen would rush Malcolm on stage. Malcolm would be shot 21 times at close range from both shotgun and automatic pistols and was pronounced dead on arrival upon reaching Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. So, he ends his life fairly early. He was very young at that point, and he did leave the family behind. But within his philosophy, as a sort of way of him understanding the world around him, even though he, he sort of died by violence, his ideas... Are you, do you have something on your mind? No, I'm not. Okay. His ideas were that, unlike King, Malcolm's original viewpoint of race relations was that of not that of equality. He thought that wasn't sufficient. Because he, he realized, like, the white man will never be equal, or will never be equal to whites this way through non-violence. We cannot achieve that. We need to be superior to them. And his idea was that he advocated for violent resistance of blacks against white Christian American society and the supremacy of African Americans over whites, which for him sort of fell under four specific points. Black people, and this is actually the teachings that he believed in. And he basically sort of stated that Black people were the original people of the world, which, you know, obviously at that point in time, there was some scientific information to state that was the truth, because at this point in time, they started sort of discovering the human origins within Africa, and that gave that movement sort of a justification of, like, see, this is what we're talking about. Uh, they, call, they noted that white people were devils, obviously through what experiences they had seen, they pointed out that blacks are superior to whites. And that final part that I had sort of brought up was that the demise of the white race was imminent. So hence what he said about the chickens coming to roost, basically these kind of assassinations that happened were sort of like the death knells of white America or white, like white oppression. Uh, against MLK's strategy of nonviolence, Malcolm did argue that nonviolence was ineffective because it disarms African Americans, opening them to direct violence by police, basically sort of leaving them defenseless. Like, you tell them not to go in without a gun, but then they get shot in the street. What are we going to do? Like, it, to him, it, it made sense, right? You saw, like we talked about Edmund Pettus Bridge, where they would get beaten with sticks. You see these people getting sprayed with fire hoses. Like, to him, 
a lot of people would see it like, I'm never going to let a cop hit me on with a head with a nightstick. I'm going to fight back. And a lot of people agreed with that, right? They were not going to take it lying down. Because this was the moment for them where it's like, I'm going to show you, as like white Americans, this is what my life has been. And this is how they had to deal with this crap. And for him, that was sort of this, a lot for a lot of African Americans, especially in the late 60s, that became a, a increasingly, you know, sort of pulling call because of what was going on with, you know, again, Vietnam and after 68 into 69. All of the things were happening, especially with Nixon being elected as president and George Wallace being a presidential candidate, where George Wallace was like a staunch advocate of segregation and white supremacy. Those things just continued to feel feel what was going on within like areas of black militancy within the civil rights movement and the black supremacy movement. He, however, would refer to MLK as a modern day Uncle Tom, because in his mind, through that, Martin Luther King Jr. was using sort of blind religious faith to keep African Americans defenseless and sort of like sedated. And it, basically, he was sort of saying like, you're not allowing them to enact their rage the way we should be enacting it. Which, again, is his opinion on it. And that kind of sums up what we have for the two of them. Are there anything you want to talk about? or? Uh, just going to briefly just say, um, again, we did our best to sort of give all the facts that we could without, um, obviously we are two, we're two white guys for the most part. I know yeah. Jake, you're not all white, but... Well, that's like I said, I pointed out, is I can't possibly understand the Neither full of experience. Neither of us are American. And we don't, you know, state that we can. And again, we want to just emphasize there is no intention of offense. There is no intention of forcing an opinion through this podcast. As we see it, we're merely just sort of putting the facts as we see them out there, and we're letting you guys choose for yourself who you agree with. Yeah, so hopefully, looking back at this now, you can kind of see, uh, even just in modern times, how both of those ideals some of these men have kind of lived on, and uh, I'm assuming will continue to live on and shape future protests yep. and future ways that people act. So yep. uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, later this week, we're going to be coming at you with something a little bit more uh, regular speed, uh, one of our regular episodes about the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, you can look for that on Thursday. Uh, and uh, we, we actually have some uh, other exciting news coming up for you. Uh, we're going to be releasing something. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe out there and stay well. Right. Bye.